So welcome everybody to uh, what is arguably a special episode. We're technically between seasons right now. <laughs> well, it's an extended break between seasons uh, due to the holidays, but a recent event has transpired that kind of motivated us to hop back in and talk because like this is arguably the most impactful vulnerability. I mean, I've been talking to some of my colleagues about this and they're saying that this is worse than shell shock. This is worse than Heartbleed. Like this is the most impactful vulnerability slash exploit that has hit the public, um, you know, in the past few decades. So we figured we had to jump in and talk about it. Um, and for those that haven't been following along, we are going to be talking about the log4j vulnerability, and folks are calling it log4shell. Um, you know, I myself have fortunately not had to be in a war room since its drop, but I know a lot of folks that have. Um, Logan, Drew, do one of y'all want to kick us off and tell us like what is log4j? Uh, it's the reason why I'm not a blue teamer. So. <laughs> it's the reason i'm in general engineering right now <laughs> these are these are all yeah and, and i am in security engineering unfortunately um not not in a position where i have to deal with it because it's not something that's in the tech stack uh for for my current employer well what were you gonna say drew yeah but log4j is a apache library uh and it is used everywhere um so if you use iOS, Mac, Linux, Windows, you're affected. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it actually affects anything on Android. So oh oh well it, it I'm not sure. So the it it has been said that the logging libraries package with Android either have this feature disabled by default or are using mm. a separate logging framework, but Android is the JVM ecosystem. So you would think that of all the all the operating systems that this is most likely going to affect, that Android would actually be top of the stack. Right. But that that's I, I just remember it not affecting um some Android devices that yeah. you know some clients had. Um it does affect Cisco IP phones. So everyone that has those, fun <laughs> joy. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, that IBM is crying with their twenty thousand phones right now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the um, and one one thing to clarify for the folks that are not familiar with kind of the way that software works, um, when we say that that Log4j is a library, uh, basically, whenever you're writing software, there is a bunch of code that you're going to write yourself, right? You need to do custom stuff, but there's all sorts of functionality that you need that you don't really want to have to write yourself. Like you don't want to have to remake the wheel every time that you're doing something. So depending on the language that you're writing in and kind of the framework that you're using or the version that you're using, uh, there is going to be a plethora of pre-existing software out there that you can use. And this software, uh, we, we typically call these various packages libraries. And so you can kind of think of like you can reach and pull a library off a shelf and that library is going to uh, provide a bunch of functionality that you don't have to implement yourself. And so log4j is the kind of like canonical and most popular logging library for Java, the JVM ecosystem. And Java is 
I don't, I don't know its current prevalence, but I would think likely the most popular software platform for the majority of software out there, especially like enterprise scale. It's mm-hmm. battle tested. It's been around forever. It's a language that people know. It's object oriented. It continues to be improved. Like Java is, if you need something that's going to be stable over time, Java, the, the affordances that it gives you will enable you to achieve that goal more cheaply. Um, and so Log4J is, if you need to, so, so when, whenever you're writing software, uh, you need to be able to understand what that software is doing. And one of the ways that you do that is you print data out about something that's going on, right? So it's like, I'll have some software that's running and I'll run some calculations and then I will print the results of those calculations out so that when I'm running my software, I can see, oh yeah, this happened and the result of it was this. Um, and it's and, and so you have logging as a core tenet of what, what it means to write production software. And then you also have... Um, when your software needs to scale up, you know, if I'm just writing software on my local machine, when I'm logging, if it's just printing out to the screen, that's fine, right? Because it's just me testing the software, whatever. But when I go to production, when I go to production, there's going to be way more requests hitting my software. It's going to be, it's going to be operating at a completely different scale. And in that case, like the data that's being printed out to the screen, first off, it's being printed out to the screen on some remote host that's sitting in a data center somewhere. And second off, the scale is such that it's like, I can't make sense of this data. So typically, you will want a logging library that you can configure to say, like, based on some set of rules, take this log data and do something with it. For instance, write it to a file and have the file be this maximum size. And when the file uh, fills up, send the file to this other place. Or you want your logging data to be sent to some centralized logging server or whatever. But basically... Within a logging ecosystem in production, you want something that enables you to take the data that is being logged and do lots of random stuff with it, whether it's sending it off to another system, whether it's only logging certain levels, you want that configurability. And that is what Log4J gives you. It is the canonical library to reach for when you are writing software in the JVM ecosystem and you need to be logging data. So this library is everywhere everywhere mm-hmm. it is it is it, i if if you stack such ranked, a nightmare <laughs> it's such a nightmare it's, if, if you stack ranked the most popular or in use libraries by prevalence i have to imagine log4j is going to be in the top 100 across all languages across all frameworks across all everything log4j has to be in the top 100 most used libraries in existence yeah, I was talking to some security engineers who never were engineers, um, like development engineers in their life. And they're like, this thing is everywhere. It's like, yeah, that's I mean, it's the go to answer for a lot of items that that it addresses. Right. Yep. So uh, and, I, and I think it really opens up people's eyes when it comes to um, using libraries uh, and it's good that that they're using these known libraries. The thing that becomes iffy is like where where they're using them in critical systems that are difficult to update, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it really makes you think. I mean, the IoT problem 
the, the, the problem with the internet of things has always been, how do you update your thing? Right. Well, and, Drew, you don't. Yeah. That's you how you throw it away. Well, what are you talking about? Buy a new uh, one, throw the other one away. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. And, and unfortunately that like, we're joking, but uh, that, that kind of <laughs> is the answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Logan's not joking because he's like, now that, <laughs> that literally is the answer for all the companies. Um, but it, it is a situation where, you know, that this problem is coming to the forefront, that this vulnerability that affects so many systems are bringing up other issues that we have in the engineering industry of like, okay, how do we do this? Um, and sometimes, you know, hopefully the answer is forever is not we throw something away um, because it's no longer needed. But, uh, you know, that is the answer right now. Some people are joking about, you know, the Mars rover being, or the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, the Mars expedition Mars, thing. Yep. Uh, being well, vulnerable. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I had someone talk about, like, how do, how do you patch that? And the honest answer is, well, you look at, like, risk of compromise uh, versus likelihood of compromise, and then you don't, and you accept the risk. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be really some some crap if someone was like, I'm going to push out this update to the helicopter on the Mars <laughs> rover, and then it bricks it. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh. hey, we need to send an engineer out there to uh, to restart that thing. Thanks. I've, se- I've seen this. This, has, this is how Dead Space starts. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so it, it is... Uh, you know, it, it is crazy. And I know a lot of blue teamers who are angry about this. Uh, someone was saying, like, why would they release this at the end of the year? Right. Or something along those lines. Uh, to uh, which, Who do you mean by they? Like the attackers? No, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the researchers well, and stuff like research. that. My understanding is that it was discovered by Alibaba. Not oh, the individual it? named Alibaba, but yeah, the yeah, yeah, massive yeah. Chinese the massive corporation. Firm, yes, yeah. Hmm. I, I haven't. So, so somebody should cite me on that for sure. But my yeah. my understanding was that this actually came out of a research group associated with Alibaba, which raises other concerns. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They found it in 2017. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. We were doing very long ethical disclosure. We only let them know <laughs> November 25th of this year, though. Once uh, we determined we had what we wanted, we uh, decided to release it. <laughs> Yeah, and to that, you know, to to the blue teamers that are getting angry that this was released, you know, so close to the holiday season is this is what you get paid to do, right? And you're getting paid obscene amounts of money. So it sucks. I know. Uh, But this is why I'm not a blue teamer. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Chris, how's your life going? Oh, it's good. It's good. It's good for various reasons. The um, let, Let's take a second to talk about what the vulnerability actually does. So we talked about the library itself. So it's this ultra prevalent um, logging library. And th- the fact of the matter is, if you're writing production software, you're likely going to have a logging library that you reach for. And if you're writing production software in Java, this is the most likely library you're going to reach for. So it is ultra prevalent. It's all over the place. And especially... And like core infrastructure that needs to be super stable. Java's the Java's the language of, of choice, and this is the library of choice. So it's ultra prevalent. What does it actually do, and how does it work? Um, 
well, there's this there's this interface called JNDI. I think that's like the Java native JNI. No, JNDI. Oh, right. JNI is Java, Java Native Interface, but this is JNDI. So I don't remember what JNDI oh. stands for. Um, but somebody back in like 2013 submitted a code change to Log4j to introduce, introduce this functionality where um, if you log a string that has a special sequence of characters, we typically refer to this as like an escape string. If you log a string that contains this specific escape sequence um then it kicks this extra functionality in and what this extra functionality does is you can specify a remote url with this escape string and tell the logging framework hey by the way when you're logging this data what i need you to do is go and fetch a java class from this remote address pull it in and then execute it. Why? <laughs> Why does that functionality exist? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that's going to be that's going to be a really interesting part of this is going back to like, okay, who authored this change and what was the thinking behind this change? I mean, like, look from the engineering side, you're typically thinking, especially if you don't have security pedigree, is like, well, new functionality is good functionality. Like, oh, this is super flexible. Um, but the so so the intended functionality, from my understanding, is you can specify a remote Java class. So basically code that has been written and compiled in Java, pull it in. And as long as that class subscribes to a specific logging interface, then it will be loaded into memory and executed with the string that is being logged. So you're able to tell the logging framework like, hey, by the way, go fetch this remote class because it's going to have some other logging functionality in it. Pass it the string that you're going to log and then continue on. I, I bet you this was implemented so they could have uh, hot reloading for their logging. Oh, yeah. And uh, what that means is it would allow the engineers to modify what is getting logged without restarting the software. And that is very neat. Like, that's valuable. <laughs> I think the number of times we can look at logic that ends up in a bad vulnerability and be like, that's pretty neat, is... Uh... <laughs> it's high. But yeah, more, more, than, more than one that... So, so this is the intended functionality is you specify a remote Java class that has some additional logging functionality. So it's loaded into memory and then executed. Um, but the way that it is now being exploited is, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. It's a logging class. It's totally going to log data. All it has to do is subscribe to a specific interface, which is to say like when you're writing code, subscribing to an interface means that it's like it's expecting a handful of different functions or a structure of the code. And so long as it adheres to that structure, then it, it subscribes to that interface. Um, you can just write arbitrary Java code that does have that functionality within it, but also does whatever you want. This is remote code execution, completely unauthenticated via a logging library that is ultra prevalent. Uh, I'm trying to think of some strained analogy. So I'm going to reach for it. We might have to cut this out. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm imagining like a party, like a really banging party, and it's a costume party. And they just look out their front door. And if anyone is wearing the right costume, they're like, you come in. Oh, I want to go to this party. party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as soon as you get in, it's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Turns out that was an agent. Yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah, so, uh, go for it. 
uh, the um, the crazy part about this is, you know, there are ways to affect air gapped systems in in this environment or or using this exploit, right? Because we can tie these uh, strings to like DNS, and yep. it is something which I, I know some of the blue teamers I've been talking to they've been freaking out about because even their air gap network is is not protected and i remember it was on friday um that i think everyone was getting the hoopla on or, or thursday or something like that of the previous week and people were like well we have a solution uh and the solution is to unplug the systems very like, <laughs> oh. insane uh. like that might work if it's not business critical, yeah. but that is not going to work out well for you if you are, you know, running a business critical app on it. You can't just unplug it and be like, "Oh, well, we'll fix it over the weekend." Um, so, yeah. but yeah, the fact that this affects so many systems that you can weaponize it so that you could start hitting air gapped systems or systems that are, you know, claimed to be air gapped, but you find out they're not. Um, this is. I. I look forward to to to, to using this. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's, it's going to pay dividends for a long time. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. It's it's like shell shock in that right. It's shell shock yeah. was so great because it was like, oh, you have a Linux box, cool. I have your Linux box now too. It's our and, Linux box. Yeah. <laughs> this is you communism. See that? It, it's, it's, it's that. It's that. Uh, yeah. It's it's a bugged bunny uh, meme. Our Linux box. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, this is going to definitely pay dividends for for years to come. Backing parties. And yeah. Again, those those embedded devices. Yeah. Uh, which are using it are going to be the ones that are that are really affected by this. What scares me the most and this might just because most of our clients are, you know, critical infrastructure is the implication of this in the critical infrastructure space and how this could be abused by bad actors um, to really exploit devices, which have, you know, gone through a ton of testing and have found to be hardened from uh, both what we'll call standard and advanced attacks. But now that we have a zero day, um, or I guess it's patched, so it's no longer a zero day, but now that we have an exploit that is hard to patch on these devices, um, this is th- this is going to affect a lot of industries, as well as the medical device industry uh, is another industry I would worry about mostly with these. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, it, it affects everything. Things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But those two, it's like things that are tied to 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 People's standard of living need. here in the U.S. and things that are tied to living. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that those are the ones that scare me the most when it comes to vulnerabilities like these and the difficulty to patch some of these systems. Have you guys uh, looked into the various mitigations for this vulnerability? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a patch, right? Oh, so even better than a patch. Um, by default, um, there's an environment variable, a setting, yeah, that is just set to do these DNS lookups, do this sort of resolution. I'm not sure why that 
is not set to default to off. It at the um so I think that the mitigations are pretty pretty slapshot right now. Uh, but one one thing that Drew you brought up that I that I kind of forgot to mention about Java and the JVM ecosystem, and one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that it's so prevalent is when you're writing software, depending on what sort of software you're writing and the language that you're writing it in, getting it to run on my laptop versus my cell phone versus a Raspberry Pi versus an embedded microcontroller versus something else. Um, depending on the language that you use, that can be really, really difficult because you run into the problem what's known as cross-compilation. Like all of these different devices, they have different CPU architectures. So the when you're building the binary, you actually have to compile it in different ways. And that process, like it's easier now than it ever has been. But even as somebody who knows a little bit about it, it is really painful to do in a lot of cases. And that's one of the great advantages of Java is that like you actually have this virtual machine that has already been compiled for all these different architectures. And when you're writing Java code, you compile it down to Java bytecode and the Java bytecode just runs on top of that virtual machine. So if you're writing software that like I need to have it running on my laptop while I'm developing it, but I am going to end up deploying it on an IoT device, or I'm going to end up deploying it on a SCADA system, or I'm going to end up deploying it on some other thing that is some other CPU architecture, Java completely does away with that problem. If it works on your laptop, it'll work there because you're compiling this binary that will just work on all these different architectures. So yeah, you end up having it on a bunch of embedded devices that are very difficult to update and in a lot of cases are designed not to be updated. I wonder uh I wonder what companies will come out and say like we can't up- we, we no longer they're going to use this to no longer support devices. Yeah. They're like, "Oh, we have this new version that is updated." Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh so if you want the, you know, not going to vol- compromise yeah. your version. <laughs> yeah. The defibrillator without the exploits in it. <laughs> you got you to gotta buy new wow. ones. But if you're okay with, you know, your defibrillator with exploits enabled, keep that one. Right? Yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure some businesses, some business units were like, hey, great. This is how we can increase sales. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't doubt that that has been said in at least one room. And the one one last point that I'll harp on on the on the exploitation side of this, because, you know, when we said like this is remote code execution, we know what that means. Um, and, and when we're when we're talking about vulnerabilities, we're always talking about kind of like how impactful it is, how easy is it to exploit stuff like that. Um, and remote code execution is kind of like the coup de gras. It is the most impact in most cases. It is the most impactful exploit because it means I can write my own code and do whatever I want, and I can get this code to run on a machine that I do not own. So whether it's like phoning back to you and letting you just like have a shell on the machine, whether it's running crypto miners, whether it's just installing a backdoor, I can write arbitrary code and get it to run on a remote um, on a remote server. And the uh, this is bad by default for custom software that you're writing if you're reaching for a log4j uh, library. But to make it even worse, to make it even worse, a lot of the existing open source ecosystem, for instance, like the Apache web server, um, 
it already uses log4j. So, so existing kind of like off the shelf open source frameworks that you're reaching for use log4j by default. And in the case of web servers, so something that's running a website, it by default logs a number of fields whenever it gets an HTTP request. So you open your browser, you type in a URL, you hit enter, your browser is going to send an HTTP request to the remote server and the remote server in its default configuration for a number of open source massively used uh, web servers are going to log, it's going to log a handful of things. It's going to log the timestamp that it gets the request. It's going to log the, uh, the path of the file that's being requested. It's going to log the HTTP status code. It's going to log the HTTP method. So get, post, put, delete, options, whatever. And, and it's going to log the user agent. And the user agent is a string that your device by default will submit on every HTTP request. And the user agent contains information about the requesting piece of software. So for instance, my browser, when it sends an HTTP request, it's going to include data in the user agent that says, hey, by the way, I am Firefox running on MacBook with this version of like WebKit, whatever. Like this is this is the entity that has sent the request. Um, if I run it on my phone, it'll be something different. But the user agent is intended to identify here is what is actually sending the request, and that value, that value is controlled by the party sending the request. So what this means is that in its default configuration on some of the most prevalent web servers in the entire world, it is by default going to log a user-controlled string every single time it gets an HTTP request. So what I have seen in my digging into like what is happening here and, and, and who's doing what, if you want to see whether or not you are being attacked or you, you are being targeted, all you have to do is look in your request logs and you'll find that a lot of the user agents you're getting right now are actually the attack payload because that is the easiest way to exploit this. So like in summary, this is ultra prevalent, no authentication, no authorization, remote code execution on the most popular frameworks in the most popular ecosystem. Dun, 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 dun. Um, uh, I, I have an example for you all. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a colleague last Thursday, um, this happened last Thursday. He told me about it this past Friday. He said he used this vulnerability to get remote code execution on aws.amazon.com and amazon.com. Okay. And... Uh, I have to include this as well. So he reported this to them uh, through HackerOne and they marked it as informative and patched it in an hour. <laughs> and, and for those who don't know, uh, marking it as informative indicates that um, it's not a very high priority vulnerability that needs fixing and it has a lower payout. Well, well yeah, he- that- one one point of clarification there. One point of clarification there, because I do actually run a bug bounty program. One of the other reasons that it will get closed as informative is we've already received it. And in a lot of cases, okay. bug bounty programs do not pay out for the same vulnerability reported twice. And also, I'll tell you what, I would not want to be working at a bug bounty triage company right now 
because you are just getting inundated with every company is vulnerable to this. And honestly, verification, I'll, I'll tell a story about verification that like you're actually vulnerable um, here in a bit. But so, so I don't, well, I just want to include, um, I don't have all the information, but that they may be using that as plausible deniability. I'm purely speculating here, but yeah. he says that it was patched an hour after he reported it. Hmm. Hmm. So it was vulnerable. He reported it, and then an hour later, it was fixed. I, yeah. I would say that might point more towards Chris's explanation, right? Because the fact that when it comes in, um, it takes time for the vulnerability yep. triage team to validate it and then communicate that to the other team, right? And and HackerOne um, uh, might be so on the ball that they're able to take that, validate, and then communicate that to the other team and AWS may be so on the ball that they just patched it in an hour um, or probably more risk realistically they patched it in 10 minutes um, because that's probably the time that was left after it went through this process um, but I'm going to say that they already were working on it I'll um, see if I can get some more information from it yeah yeah, yeah I'd love um, to I'd love to know more yeah right and that's just giving the benefit of the doubt to AWS and HackerOne, right? Uh, I mean, so, I'm glad you guys brought that up. Yeah. That, um, well, and, and to be clear, this vulnerability, especially to providers like that, I would throw in the bucket of existential threat. They are a core. Absolutely. They they are a core part of the modern internet, and a big part of dealing with Amazon is. Oh, yeah, I trust that the underlying infrastructure is secure because they put so much effort into it. And to a large extent, that is true. Like, I think anytime that you're designing something, there's a certain layer that you have to say, just like, look, everything underneath this layer, I'm just going to trust. And in a lot of cases, that layer is going to be your hosting provider. So it's like, yes, all the AWS services work as expected. They apply security controls in the way that is anticipated. Um, so I don't doubt that as soon as this was understood, Companies like AWS and other big internet providers were like, okay, war room, all of security, all of leadership in now, because if we do not deal with this, this is going to be the, an absolute nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. That So user agents, what I was talking about before of like, okay, the, the de facto, the, the most common way that this is uh, able to be actively exploited. Uh, I was talking to another colleague of mine who has been in a war room for a number of days now uh, talking about where is it, this is actually exploitable. And so, you know, by default, we're logging that on the user agent that's happening on the web servers, but this is vulnerable everywhere that anything logs. And so some other instances that this individual was sharing with me that, that are vulnerable. Um, so like you said, Drew, DNSC name records. So you can put a payload in a DNSC name record and have like the DNS library get compromised. I've heard... C name fields in SSL certificates. So you can have it as an SSL Ooh. certificate for something is connecting to, um, or like a mutual TLS certificate. Um, I have heard, I have seen all the, all the HTTP request headers. So like user agent X forwarded for host name, like literally any field in that, in that um, HTTP request is there. And then literally any, any service that you use, any API, any app that you're using, any field that you can submit uh, that payload string. So whether it's your username, your profile, your bio, your email address, anything like that, anything that the user controls 
if the code on the back end takes that data and writes it to a log file, then like, boom, done. Um, and in my, okay, so so I, I won't say the name of the providers, uh, but I have received a handful of reports um, that there are uh, of like, hey, we believe that the, this app is vulnerable and I have dug into it. And in all cases thus far, uh, it's been, okay, this is actually not true. And what has been demonstrated is other parts of infrastructure that the reporter is using to do testing are actually vulnerable, but the app that they're testing against is not vulnerable. <laughs> so for instance, they were using a specific hosting provider to run their testing. And they were like, look, I got a DNS callback at this Canary domain name that I was using. You must be vulnerable. And then I look at the IP address that the callback came from. And I'm like, this is not us. This is the hosting provider that you were using. So oh, literally, no. the fact that they typed the <laughs> payload into the bash shell that they were using on that hosting provider, apparently that hosting provider logs everything in that bash shell into some system that touches log4j. So they were compromising the underlying infrastructure that they were testing from without realizing it. Yo, that's wild. Yeah, and, and also, wild. I'm definitely not using that hosting provider again. <laughs> no. It's like, oh, you're literally taking everything that's happening in bash shells and logging it somewhere. Do, do we use this hosting provider? I've used them before. Okay, gotcha. Oh, yep. do you not do you not recently use them? <laughs> <laughs> I plead the one, two, three, four. Fizzle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, right. <laughs> so that that was, um, and also like, like like basically, I have seen multiple cases now where various tertiary infrastructure has actually been vulnerable, but the targeted endpoint is not vulnerable, but the path that the data takes to get there is vulnerable. And that is a testament to just how deep this vulnerability can trigger and just how prevalent it is in that like, it's everywhere. And I like, like look, there's companies coming out saying like, oh yeah, we're not vulnerable. We've, we've looked at this, that, and the other thing. Um, I would expect within the next few months, we are going to see the largest rash of like like compromised disclosures that we have ever seen. I may, hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Um, but I think in a lot of cases, and to, you know, enterprises just don't understand where all they can be vulnerable and don't have, like everybody's racing to be like, don't worry, don't worry, it's not us. Um, and I think that it is quite premature to be making those sorts of assertions. Man, I um, was Solar Winds this year. No, no, I was no. last year or the year before. Was it end of last year. Okay, yeah. What is time? Uh, what <laughs> is time? Yeah, uh, I do. I agree with you that we're going to see some wacky compromises over the next couple months and the next year. But like, how much more can it get ratcheted up? You know, I, this is we are we are in the end game. I don't think I like if you had to if you had to design like a worst case scenario for something that could happen. I think this is a completely unauthenticated RCE remote access in an ultra prevalent library that is on a bunch of devices that can't be patched. And the um, what what's what's more is uh, if you're just some small enterprise that owns a single website, 
sure, whatever. Uh, easier to patch. But when we're talking about global scale internet platform providers, <clears throat> the process of patching is ultra fraught, right? Like you have you have a bunch of services that you can't take down. Like look at that. There were some reports. I have not independently verified them, but there were some reports that like iCloud was vulnerable or some mm-hmm. system yeah. within, within Apple was vulnerable. You're talking about a service that is connected to by billions of devices that if you take down, you're preventing people from communicating with each other. You're disabling like photo backups. You're disabling account recovery. Like iCloud is such an important service for so many people that like a big problem in doing this update is like, okay, yeah, we need to patch everything all at once. But the thing is, if we take everything down all at once, we're going to have like massive rolling outages across the modern internet. So the so so one big problem is figuring out where exactly are you vulnerable. And then another problem is like, hey, by the way, you're vulnerable really, really deep in your stack in a bunch of like services and, and software that you never thought you were going to have to update because it's just like, this has some small thing. It, it's it's a core pin dependency in everything that we use. It It's never going to have to be updated. And so we haven't actually designed systems in such a way where it is fault tolerant, where it can be like, we'll patch half of it, take half down, patch the other half, bring it back up, whatever. So like, yeah, figuring out where you're vulnerable is hard enough, but especially for these massive internet platforms, figuring out how to patch, this is going to be this is going to be figuring out new territory. There's no runbook that folks are going to be able to reach for to be like, yeah, this is the way that we do this because this is. This is I would I would make the argument that this is largely unprecedented. You, you know what I think is funny? I've had some friends in industry tell me that um, after getting compromised, they'll find crypto miners on boxes. Yep, yep. and it's so funny to use such a scary vulnerability to install a crypto miner like keys to the kingdom <laughs> and that's what you do yeah well and 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 it really shows you like what is the motivation of other organized crime or or um smaller groups that that are trying to you know hack these systems and the motivation is money right yeah so yeah, they could steal your information. They could sell it and yada, yada, yada. But that takes so much effort. Yeah. So hit the low-hanging fruit and go and um, you know exploit this, uh, install a miner, and start making passive income using someone else's you know electricity. Yep. And I think we're going to see this tied to more ransomware uh in like 2022 oh, for sure uh so ransomware is already um you know in our top five of like things that are going to continue and just get worse in 2022 uh and this is just going to take it to the next level and uh you know if you want that defibrillator without the exploit so it can't be ransomed you gotta buy a new one right this defibrillator uh, comes preloaded with bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> oh sweet with a Bitcoin miner. <laughs> Doesn't come preloaded with Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, that's um, yeah, um, I, I want to I follow on to that because this, yeah. this question came up in a, in a conversation that I was having before. Is like, why, why crypto miners, right? Like, you have the ability to endemically compromise all of these big companies with this, with this exploit. Um, and yeah, you could. 
but it really comes down to how are you going to monetize? How are you going to turn that into actual money? And you're also going to be looking at risk versus reward there. Sure, you could probably gain access to lots of really sensitive data, but now you're going to have to go sell that data. And when you go to sell that data, uh, you know, for the various law enforcement organizations that are going to be looking to prevent this sort of behavior, that's one of the places that they inject themselves is they're going to be in the market. They might buy the data from you. They might be the ones that like, this is how they're going to track you down. Um, so like, yeah, crypto miner, you're just stealing CPU to make a little bit of a buck, but the likelihood that you're going to get caught with that. And you got to think like also blue team forensic groups are going through and finding everything. It's like, look, if they find a crypto miner, that will actually probably give them a sense of relief of like, oh, yes, it's, yeah, it's just a crypto miner. I'll delete it. It'll be fine. <laughs> if they didn't use it to pivot to anything, like that's probably just gonna be like, delete it, keep going versus, oh, we found an attacker that got hooks into the system and they have used this to pivot inward. That is going to be where they launch a further investigation. And that is also where they're going to start br- like looping in law enforcement to be like, oh, we yeah. have an actual breach. So in terms of it's risk a good way to reward, cover tracks, it, it's a good way to cover tracks. And in terms of risk versus reward, the likelihood that you're going to get caught or sought out um, when you're just installing crypto miners all over the place is like there are much bigger fish to fry. So it seems to me and, and also with ransomware, like we see like a much stronger push coming from law enforcement to go after these ransomware groups, rightfully so. And so like, yeah, risk versus reward. The risk is going up. The reward is going down. Well, in in ransomware, reward's still going up. Um, But just in terms of like, what is the least risky way that you can turn a buck? Crypto miners are going to be the, the, you know, the canonical standard. And that is, it's funny because I've even seen, I've even seen one attacker payload that it was kind of, kind of clever. Um, the actual URL, you could specify a base 64 encoded payload. So it'd be like IP address slash some string slash base 64 encoded payload. And it seems like if you requested that endpoint, it would take the base 64 encoded payload, turn that into code, generate a Java class that would execute that code and return it. So you can basically specify a Java program that does something arbitrary based on the base64 encoded string and somebody like took those base64 encoded strings decoded them was like these are all crypto miners that's fun <laughs> fun <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean yeah it, it is a, a again it, it just shows you like what level of what what is the goal for organized crime right and the goal is to make money um when you find hacktivists that will use this exploit they're not going to install the crypto miners right they're going to steal information they're going to try to sell it or they're going to leak it to the media right um and that's kind of how you can tell your level of adversary uh when it comes to looking at your actual compromise and and what was found and stuff like that um and again, it's all about numbers. It's a numbers game. If you can install a million, you know, crypto miners on a system versus if you can spend the time to find the information that someone would actually want to buy, uh, you know, you're, you're probably going to make more money just installing those million crypto miners on the system. So well, might as well do that. Um, 
selling selling data, and this is the other part. Uh, selling data is difficult, uh, and especially in like people think about like espionage, and they're like, yeah, you know, corporate espionage. We got to worry about that, and you do have to worry about that. But not everyone has the correct channels to sell that information quickly and for a good amount of money. So uh, there are a lot of other factors that come into play besides just like not getting caught, right? You have to have the correct channels. You have to have uh, a motivated buyer and uh, you have to have some level of trust in between the buyer and the broker. Mm -hmm. And if you're just selling it to randos, to Chris's point, uh, you're probably selling it to law enforcement. And then they'll find you and they'll kill your dog. So, uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that was part of the SOP. <laughs> yeah, shoot dog. <laughs> <laughs> shoot dog. Um, um, but <laughs> yeah, so, so that is a, uh, you know, a, again, it's just a numbers game. How can I make the most amount of money? the fastest way possible um, with the lowest amount of risk on my part. And this is, this is the answer. And I definitely see log for J being used in the future for that. Oh, I see it being used yeah. for more massive attacks that are unrealized to us right now as well. Um, but it is, it is interesting to see how this is going to progress in, you know, the next two or three quarters. The other thing that I, th- I thought interesting, going back to kind of the beginning of this episode, uh, Chris, you, I was looking this up during the uh, during while you were speaking. Uh, Log4j was found by a Chinese security researcher. I couldn't find what company he worked for. Um, I found his GitHub, and we can put that in the show notes. Um, but uh, other companies like Cisco were seeing this vulnerability they didn't know what it was um being used like uh, a week or two before it was yeah um reported yeah yeah uh, so not not patched but a week or two before it was reported yeah and mm-hmm. uh you know that's that's very interesting to to see like okay the security researcher was he the one using it or did someone else happen to find this and they happened to stumble on it, and then they released it, right? Yeah. But uh, questions will probably not get answers to yep. uh, anytime soon or ever. But yeah. it is always interesting to see, like, oh, this crazy vulnerability was used beforehand. You know, example like Shellshock. You know, the day Shellshock got reported, um, it was like, how many times was that used before it was yep. reported? Yep. And there's been many, many instances where major remote code execution um, exploits have been used for many months before it was detected or reported uh, by a security researcher. And I, I look forward to seeing how this plays out with Log4j to see yeah. like, oh, snap. No, this has actually been used, you know, like I, like I was joking about uh, since 2017. Yep. Right. And that yep. that's a joke. I swear to God, if the answer is it was like used in 2017, I have like no master magic ball. Um, and it wasn't me. Uh, 
I was just throwing out a random year. Okay. So <laughs> well, the, the, doing um, the cover my ass thing here. <laughs> the, uh, because this is an exploit in logging systems, we may have additional visibility into this. That, right. Uh, like, because basically of all the data that is going to be persisted for long periods of time, log data is probably is like the highest probability, right? That's so if this has been being exploited for years, we will have the historical evidence to show, yes, in fact, this is being used back then. That said, and here's one of the interesting parts, the string that gets evaluated gets nulled out in the log data. So you're not actually looking for the payload in the log string, you're looking for the gap which makes it right. harder to analyze. But mm-hmm. they, look, there's forensic firms that specialize in this sort of stuff. They can very much go through terabytes, if not petabytes of log data and say like, yep, there's a gap here where there shouldn't have been. This was an exploit. So we will have the ability to look back historically and say, how long has this been in the wild? And I assume we'll we'll know about that at some point, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. Um, I, but we're, I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're coming up here on time. Um, so let's let's leave y'all with uh, kind of a few takeaways. I'm just going to do these off the top of my head. So let's see how good this goes. Cool. Uh, so like the three takeaways for today's show are one, Log4j is an ultra prevalent logging library used within the JVM ecosystem. It's all over the place. Two, the exploit in question is for Log4j. And all you have to do is log an attack string to a log file and you exploit it. And this results in remote code execution. And three, this vulnerability has existed for years. Presently, we don't have any understanding of how long it's been under active exploitation, but we should know more within the coming months. Well, thanks for joining us for our special episode during the break between seasons. Two and three or, or three and four? Ooh. Oh, wow. Wow. All right. Three and four. Like Chris said, what is four. time? I know, we hope right? you enjoyed today's Jeez, episode, though. Uh, it definitely was one where we thought it was of value to bring it forward, even though we're, we're in that little lull season for the holidays. Uh, we definitely look forward to seeing you all or having you uh, you know, send us comments and, and responses, especially for season four. We have some pretty interesting guests already lined up so i'm excited yeah i know last man we're, we're doing video too right now this is this is wild i need to, uh, <laughs> need to look like less of a schlep in the morning <laughs> schlep schlep is you just right you just word. need to but get a coffee fits. shop as your background <laughs> man <laughs> That's true. That's true. I just need, I need to yeah. take a picture of yours and put it as my digital background. <laughs> oh, I like that That's idea. Great. Yeah. <laughs>